0: If you would, if you're physically able, I'm going to ask you one more time to physically stand out of honor for God's word. We do this because we love God's word so much that we want to read it together while we're standing together. Uh, This is in Exodus chapter 40. Let's just read the first few verses. Here's what Moses wrote. He said, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put it in, you shall put in it the ark of the testimony. And you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it. You shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting." And place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become Holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. Verse 11, you shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. Verse 14, you shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anoint their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit to them them, uh, shall admit them uh, to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Verse 16, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. Would you pray with me, heavenly fathers, as we study these verses? I pray you will help us to see Jesus and why this text matters. So Lord, this morning, may you teach your sheep, feed us by your word. And Lord, in this room, those who don't know you, I pray as we study this morning and as we read from your word, I pray that you might use your word to convict their hearts of their desperate need for forgiveness from their sin and that they might put their trust in Jesus Christ, the only sacrifice suitable to forgive us. So Father, may you work and move in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated for just a few minutes. We we need to give some background because this whole talk about tabernacle and why it matters, um, really originates long before we get to this text. In fact, if you were going to look at the importance of the tabernacle and the temple, you would need to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Because when you get to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 through 3, we actually learn something interesting. That when God creates his people and creates everything in the world, guess what he does with his people in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? He dwells with them. He creates human beings, and they dwell in his midst in the Garden of Eden. They are with God. But then in Genesis chapter 3, something happens. Adam and Eve sin. They rebel against God. They go against what he's told them. They try to be their own kings. And as a result of their rebellion, what does God do to them? Well, he pronounces the cursing that comes along with rebellion and sin, But then he actually puts them out, we're told. In Genesis chapter 3, God puts Adam and Eve out of the garden. And what does God do to prevent them from re-entering? He sets cherubim to guard the gate into the garden of Eden. Right? What's God teaching us through Genesis 1, 2, and 3? That God means to dwell with his people. His intent is to dwell with his creation But because of sin, there is a separation that takes place between people and God. That separation is so serious that they must be put out of God's presence. And they must be forbidden to enter back in. That whole idea of being blocked from the garden is actually something that God promises to restore at some point. In Genesis chapter 15, we find that God enters into a covenant with Abraham, his name is Abram at the time, but enters into a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, and what is the promise God makes to Abraham? He says, I will make of your descendants a mighty nation, and that nation will dwell with me, and I will dwell with them. So the whole idea behind the promise is made from the very beginning of the Bible. Although while humanity is separated from God, God intends to restore his people back to dwelling with him. That's great because have you looked at any of us? I mean, we ain't the most pleasant people to dwell with. And some of you are great. But because of sin, we don't deserve to dwell with God. There's none of us in this room that go, you know what, I really deserve to be with God. No, we don't deserve to be with him. So the fact that God wants to be with us, fascinating. We're like the ugly girl at the dance and God wants to be with us. It's that's, that's amazing to me that he even cares for sinners like us. But he promises to Abraham and then to Moses and then to David that God is ultimately purposed, that he's going to bring his people back and they're going to dwell with him. So much so that God wants to give them a picture of that. God is so dedicated to dwelling with his people. He knows we as human beings can't understand that very well. So in the Bible, he gives pictures of him dwelling again with his people. Well, guess what? That's what the tabernacle is the whole reason for God telling them to build this tabernacle the whole reason for them building a temple later on is because God told them that they did that so that he might dwell with them that's what the word tabernacle means it means to dwell with exodus 25 verse 8 we're given the purpose behind the construction of the tabernacle God says let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. Right? God desires to dwell with his people, so he tells them to build a tabernacle so that he might dwell with them. Exodus 29, verse 44 through 46, God says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests." Notice this, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might Dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What was the whole point of building this structure? It was to show people that God desired to dwell with his people. And he would show them that in a picture of a tabernacle or a tent. That they were going to erect, they were going to put up, and they were going to take with them everywhere they traveled. Throughout their wilderness wanderings, they would take it with them. And it was a picture of God dwelling with his people. So what does this teach us? What is the tabernacle teaching us about God and us? Think of it this way. I heard a theologian say, the tabernacle in Exodus 40 And the temple that would later come are a kind of mini Eden. Eden in a smaller, more compact fashion. That through the tabernacle, it was a step towards God's restoration of his people. Because the tabernacle actually represented God's house among the people. Think about how it's described. Okay, many of you may not know about the temple area or the tabernacle area, but there were key sections of it. There was a primary front section to the tabernacle when you first walked in. And what was inside the primary little room that you first walked into? Furniture. Almost like you would find in a house. And when you walked into the first front room, there was furniture. There were lamps. And there was a table. A table for bread. Which was the. Y'all got tables in your house? Not just to set your folded laundry on. <laughs> right? But. But when you see a table. What's, what's implied by the table in the, in the, in the house? Eat. Right. Eat and. Yeah. Fellowship. Gather. Fellowship. It's a picture of. It was a representation of God's, God's house with his people. When you walked in the main room, there's furniture like you'd have in a house, and there's a table for eating. It's almost like God saying, I'm going to dwell with y'all in a small mini version. But there was another room to the house. There was a, a back room to the house. And guess what? They couldn't go in the back room. You know why they couldn't go in the back room? Because that's where God himself was pictured to be. God said he would dwell in the holy place, the most holy place. Remember they put the ark inside there? They had a veil, a big old curtain that separated so you couldn't go in. So even in God's house, while he's dwelling with his people, guess what we get the picture of? It ain't perfect yet because you know why? There's still... There's still a separation. Now, now it's God is with us, He's dwelling with us, but there's still a barrier to us being with Him fully. He dwells behind the veil. And you can't go back there except when God says you can. Well, guess what? That's from the beginning. That's from the construction of the tabernacle. That's the case. But I want you to see the picture. God is giving you a picture of his house. His dwelling with his people. And every time they set the tabernacle up and every time they surrounded it, guess what they were reminded of? God dwelling with his people, but it's not yet perfect. And they took it with them everywhere they went. Why do you think it was so important that they would be near the temple when the temple was built? To be away from the temple was like being away from God. Because that was his house with his People. So when the people are taken off into exile or aren't able to be near the temple, guess what? That's a tragic thing because it's to be away from God. And so we see that God is giving them a picture of how he desires to dwell with them, but it's not finished. Now what do we learn from the construction of it? In chapter 40... Verses 1 through 33, you see the actual construction of the tabernacle. Now, I'm guessing that most of us in the room haven't sat down for our morning devotion or whenever you study the Bible and gone and read verses 1 through 33 like, man, this is really powerful stuff, right? Get the ark, put it in it. Get the altar, put it in it. Get the basin, put it in it. Put the table in. Put the lamp. You don't read that and go, oh, this is the great. But every single bit of it is important because it's God setting up his house and he does it very specifically. They have to do it in a certain order and there have to be certain details that they follow. I wonder why God would be so detailed about this. Let me walk you through this very quickly. The very specific detailed instructions we find in verses 1 through 33, I believe are emphasizing the importance of obedience. When dwelling with God. Because what they're going to do is God's going to say, here are the instructions of what you're to do. And we're going to find out whether they actually follow the instructions. Because obedience is important. And remember, this is coming off a group that was worshiping golden calves at the bottom of the mountain. Because they got impatient that Moses wasn't coming down fast enough. So what a test of obedience we find. Let me save you the grunt work that I did. Let me, let me show this to you. We're told in verse 2 that they are to do this on the first day of the first month they're supposed to put the tabernacle together. Guess what? In verses 17, 18, and 19, we find that Moses goes on the day he was instructed, and he begins to put up the tabernacle like he was told. After that, he was told in verse 3 that he was to put the ark of the testimony inside and to put the veil in front of it. I want you to notice the first thing in, the ark and the veil to separate. Kind of important, almost like they're key to the whole thing. Well, guess what? In verses 20 through 21, guess what Moses did? He put the ark inside and he put the veil to cover it like he was told. Next, in verse 4, Moses was told to bring in the table and the lampstand with the lamps. Guess what? Verses 23, uh, 22, 23, 24, and 25, he does exactly that. He brings in the table, he brings in the lampstand, he brings in the lamps. In verse 5, Moses is told to put the golden altar for incense and to set up the screen for the door. In, chap- in verses 26 through 28, Moses does exactly that. He brings in the altar, sets up the screen for the door. Verses 6 and 7, Moses is told to put the altar of burnt offering and to put the basin inside. He also told to fill it with water. Well, guess what? In verses 29 through 32, Moses does exactly that. And then finally in verse 8, Moses is told to set up the court that's going to be outside the, te- the tabernacle. And in verse 33, we're told Moses did it. So Jason, why does all that matter? What it's demonstrating is that God said do it this way. And Moses did exactly what God said to the letter. Now this is good news coming off a group that had been worshiping golden calves at the bottom of the mountain. Now here what we see is a picture of actual obedience to what God had said. And it's a beautiful picture because Moses literally does exactly what God tells him to do. And remember, he's representing the people. So what we find is those who had been in idolatry during the golden calf incident are now found demonstrating obedience. Wow, the grace of God, right? That he allows them to continue forward and now we find them being obedient to him. And by the way, this obedience is necessary for the Lord to dwell with his people. They must do it the way he prescribes. Now, let me point out a few things to you. I want you to notice in verse two how the tabernacle is described. In verse two, we're told, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of what? The tent of meeting. You see the same tent of meeting used again in verse 34. So what was the tabernacle meant to be? It was meant to be a tent where God met with his people. It wasn't just a building, it wasn't just a cool structure, it was meant to practically be where God would meet with his people, a good, holy, gracious God meeting with rebellious people like us. But I want you to also notice, like I mentioned earlier, that there's still more to come because it's it's still pointing out that a problem exists. We're told, later on in chapter 40, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, verse 35. So even though we have God dwelling with his people, even Moses, who was considered the holiest of them all, was not allowed to go in to the tent of meeting. Why? God wanted to dwell with his people. God's there in the tent of meeting, but he tells Moses not to come in yet. Well, I believe it's pointing to us that things still are not completely as they should be. There's still barriers that exist, and they are symbolized not only by Moses not being able to go in, but even if he were to go in, it's also symbolized by the fact that there's this huge curtain that is cutting off the front room from the back room there's still a reminder that it's not fully as it should be. I want you to also notice that Moses and the people are indeed obedient to do what God has told them to here in this chapter, but that obedience is going to be short-lived. They're obedient here, yea, God, but they're also going to go through periods of rebellion again where they don't do what God says. In fact, we see that throughout the Old Testament. As you read through the rest of the the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, you find the people of God wandering through the wilderness. Are they a mark of obedience as they walk through the wilderness? No, they're found grumbling and complaining and rebelling the entire time. Guess what God continues to do? Continue to meet, continue to meet, continue to meet, continue to meet. So we see it even in the wilderness wandering, the people of God don't do what they're told. Then He brings them into the promised land, and guess what they do once they're in the promised land that God was going to give them. They rebel against him again. And they keep on rebelling against him to the point where God has to do what? Take them out of the land., oh- oh. oh, oh. Sounds an awful lot like the Garden of Eden again. God brings them into the land. To dwell with him, they're found rebelling against him. So, guess what he has to do? Put them out of the land. It's like the Garden of Eden's happening again. Get what God's teaching you? Right? His grace, His goodness. We rebel. He judges. We are able to repent and turn back. He provides restoration. We come back. We rebel. Kicks us out. Brings us back. We rebel. Puts us out, brings us back. You see the pattern that goes throughout the Old Testament into the New is this act that God is continuing to want to dwell with his people, but they are still a rebellious people. They don't always do what he desires for them to do. So it tells us that the tabernacle and the temple cannot be the end because if it is, it's a miserable end. It can't be about the tabernacle and the temple because they continue to still blow it. And so as such, God must do something greater to permanently dwell with his people. Remember when I read this morning, Isaiah 59? Isaiah 59 told us about the promise of God that he was going to restore his people. But again, in Isaiah 59, verse 14, 15, and 16, he says this. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede, and then his own arm brought him salvation. God looks out, even, sin, even generations after the wilderness wandering, God looks out and says, there's still injustice, there's still sin, there's still rebellion. Is there a single person out there who can intercede for them? Is there anyone righteous and holy enough who can stand in the place of these people? No, so God says, I'll do it. And in Isaiah 59, God is promising that he's going to send a deliverer one day who is going to ultimately rescue his people We see that earlier in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. God said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. We read this around Christmas time, don't we? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name. What's his name? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with You might notice that the name given to the Messiah would say, God dwells with us. See, they had a tabernacle and they had a temple, but it wasn't enough because they became so fixated on the tabernacle and the temple. That's all it became about was the building, the building, the building, the building. And what they missed was the building was pointing to something greater. God dwelling with his people through the tabernacle was not the final say in the story. The tabernacle was supposed to point them to the fact that they needed God to do something greater to dwell with his people permanently. And we're told in Isaiah that the Messiah who would come would be given the name Emmanuel, God with us. God dwelling with his people. That was the promise they were waiting for was the one who would actually accomplish this. Matthew 1 verse 23 the birth of jesus isaiah 7:14 is quoted basically saying that jesus was the fulfillment of the one they'd been waiting for that jesus was god dwelling with humanity jesus wasn't just a cool dude he wasn't just a great teacher jesus was god in the flesh dwelling with people. That's what the tabernacle was. So guess what? You start to make some connections that the tabernacle and the temple are actually not about physical buildings but are about Jesus. The tabernacle was just to be a picture of Jesus. Is it any wonder why the ark was the first thing to go in? What did the ark represent? Jesus. Y'all can grab that sermon from a couple of weeks ago. See how the story of God redeeming people is not disjointed. It's all one story, but they became so fixated on the building, they stopped looking for the Messiah. And when Jesus shows up, they don't believe him. But we're told that Jesus is the fulfillment. He was God dwelling among his people. John chapter 1 verse 14. When John lays out his unbelievable presentation of Jesus. We're told the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what the word dwelt means? Tabernacle. When Jesus showed up in human flesh. It was God tabernacling with people. And it was far better than just a building. It was far better than a tent in the wilderness. It was God himself dwelling among his people. Y'all got me? Exodus 40 isn't about some tent. Exodus 40 is about Christ and the fact that one day he would come and he would dwell among people. So what does this teach us? When John says the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, this is telling us that Jesus is the true tabernacle. The tent in the wilderness is Jesus coming to dwell with God's people. And so Jesus is the true tabernacle as he took on flesh to dwell among people. And just in case you think I'm trying to make this up off the top of my head, Or that I'm just being fancy with verses and putting them together in a way that we shouldn't. John chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. And I'm almost done, I promise you. I'm almost done. John chapter 2, verse 18 through 22 says this. So the Jews said to him, meaning Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. What are they thinking of? For them, the temple was just a building. And when they're thinking of what Jesus is saying, they're thinking he's just talking about a physical building. He want, he's going to build the, te- the temple again in three days? Took us, we're, on, we're on year 46. And you're saying, you're going, what's, the, what's the problem? They're missing They're missing the point. They're missing what the tabernacle and temple were supposed to be about. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he, meaning Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I love the fact that that's inserted in there. When Matthew writes this, he's like, oh, by the way, we didn't get this the first time. Oh, when when John's writing it, we didn't get this the first time. But after Jesus resurrected, we were like, remember when he talked about the temple being raised in three days? His body is the temple. That's talking about his resurrection. So, guess what? The tabernacle wasn't about a tent in the wilderness. The temple wasn't about a building sitting on a mount. The temple was about Jesus Christ. That's how God was ultimately going to dwell with his people. And it's interesting that all around Jesus is temple language. Jesus is talking about the temple as his own body. We have Jesus offering sacrifice, we have Jesus as the great high priest. What God's teaching us is that the whole temple was meant to point us to the need for someone who could actually perfectly be obedient to God and live according to what God had taught them. And Jesus was that person. Can I take it even one step further? Not only does Jesus call his own body the temple, but in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, the author of Hebrews tells us, that Jesus' body is the curtain in the temple. And when Jesus, so Jesus is not only the temple, he's also the curtain. You ever wondered why, when Jesus was crucified on the cross and he died, guess what happened to the curtain in the temple? That was Jesus tearing his own body so that there would no longer be a division between the front room in the back room, you could now get to God. You could be with him. You could, folks, (laughs) I'm getting goosebumps, sorry. I hope you see this. What God's teaching us in Exodus chapter 40 is what Jesus finally finished. When he died on the cross, the curtain was ripped, and now we can actually have access to God, we can finally have him, not in a temporary fashion, but permanently we can have God. Oh, see, we read Exodus chapter 40 as just a tent in the wilderness, but what Jesus is teaching us is it's all about him. He would die. He would have his body ripped in two so that we could actually dwell with God forever, Now, can I finish on, I know I've said finish like three times. You know that already, though. That's how preachers are. You know that. Don't be shocked that I've said finish like three times. I promise you this is it. Came up in Sunday school today. By the way, if you're not in Sunday school, you should come to Sunday school. You get to study the Bible and you get to talk about a lot of interesting stuff. You need to come to Sunday school at 9.30. If you're not, you're missing out like a champion. You need to come Because you can you're able to actually talk and study about the Bible together, which is so helpful, able to ask questions. And this even came up as part of our discussion this morning. I was glad to be a part of it and glad to be there for it. And always a good rule as a pastor is mark these things before you talk about them. (laughs) Found it. New heaven, new earth. We're told this is the culmination of all of God's redemptive plan, is that one day there would be a new heaven and a new earth, and God would dwell with his people. Let me read to you. Revelation chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for us. I believe those are Christians being presented to God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, get this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't that the promise God made all the way back in Genesis that God said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation and I'm going to dwell with you and you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. Revelation chapter 21 says it finally happens. God dwells with his People perfectly. Why? Because Jesus has conquered every foe and all sin has been put away, all evil, all death has been put away, and now God says the dwelling place of God is with man. What we've wanted from the Garden of Eden has finally come back and what the tabernacle gave as a mini garden of eden revelation 21 is the full thing it is the entire cosmic scale where all of the created order has been restored the way god wanted it from the beginning and now we have new eden that is so much better because in new eden guess what you can't even possibly sin no more being put out again Revelation 21, is new Garden of Eden, so much better than you can ever imagine, and you'll never be kicked out again. Notice, later on, in, in Revelation 21, verse 22, we're told this, and you might find it interesting. I don't know if you've ever camped on it for a second. Verse 22 of Revelation 21 says, and I saw no temple in the city. Why? Why is there no temple in new heaven, new earth? I like what you're saying, Miss Donna. He tells us, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God is telling us it ain't about a tent. It's not about a physical building. It's about Jesus. And in new heavens, new earth, you don't need a temple. You know why? You finally have God fully. You don't have to have a temporary structure. You don't have to have a small little mini version. You get the whole thing because you get God fully and completely. He's going to dwell with you. You're going to dwell with him. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more death. No more sickness. Just you dwelling with your God forever. And the only temple you need is God himself and the lamb sitting next to him. Oh, I need that so badly. Because every day of this life seems to be rotten and filled with sin and injustice. But one day, when Jesus comes back, we're going to get to be with God forever. No more of this injustice and sin. And we will finally, finally, as his kids... We'll gather around our dad and we'll say thank you for rescuing me and dwelling with us. God doesn't just love you. He wants to dwell with you and he's done everything necessary through his son Jesus. You can be with God, but you must trust that Jesus is the only sacrifice that can get you to him. And so this morning, whether you know a lot of the Bible or you know this much, please just know that God is a holy God and he can't stand the sight of sin. And he will judge it, he has to. If he's gonna be a righteous judge, he he has to punish sin. And if he didn't do anything, that's where we would be. Because we are sinners, every one of us, We've all blown it. Even you sweet little old ladies, you guys have blown it too in your lives. Maybe not as bad as the rest of us, but you have. We've all blown it. Every single one of us in this room. And if God didn't do anything, we'd all be destined for hell. But God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God himself said, I will dwell with them and I'll die in their place. And if you believe that Jesus is the king and that his sacrifice is all that's necessary to forgive you of your sin, please trust in him today. Don't leave here resting in your church attendance or your giving in the offering or that your daddy was a deacon. Those things cannot save you, but Jesus does. Trust in him. And then Christians... We got a lot to be thankful for because we ain't waiting for God to dwell with us. He's dwelling with us right now. He gave us his spirit that we might be with God even though we're still imperfect and we're told that the spirit is the down payment of the full inheritance we're waiting for. And that full inheritance is when you as a Christian will meet your dad face to face and he says, welcome. Welcome. Dwell with me. Oh, there's no better gift than to know that's what God has done for us. I pray everybody in the room trusts in Christ. And if, if you have, sing it to the mountaintops. And tell every person you possibly can that that forgiveness is available for them too. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you. And I thank you for the truth of your word. That, Lord, in Exodus 40, you weren't just talking about some building or tent in the wilderness. You were pointing us to our desperate need for Jesus and the promise that he would one day come. And, Father, I thank, I thank you that while I am imperfect, Jesus was completely perfect and holy and obedient to your will. And it's only by him that we can be forgiven of our sin. And so, Father, this morning, work in the hearts of every person in this room Lord, if there are people trusting in other things other than Christ, may you show them clearly this morning that they cannot be saved apart from the work of Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection from the grave, Jesus can give life because he conquered death in our place. So, Father, may they trust in you. May you draw people to repent, to turn away from ugly sin that does nothing but destroy, and instead to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus and find forgiveness only in him. And, God, thank you that you tell us in your word that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't turn us away, but you forgive. And, Father, for us as Christians in the room, I'm grateful that you dwell with us now that because your spirit lives within us, we know that you are with us. But God, we do long for the day when we will finally be with you free from sin. And we will finally be with you to dwell perfectly in your presence, never to be put out again. Oh Lord, you deserve praise in this place this morning because your mighty arm has reached down. God, do it again. I pray that this morning we will respond to you because you're worth it. Root out sin. Give us a love for you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.